0: Welcome everybody, my name is Alexander Grieb, I am the Customer Advisory Lead S4HANA Strategy at SAP, and you are listening to the SAP Experts Podcast. Today we have something very special for you, because this week... And next week, we focus 100% on a practice slash a profession that is playing a huge role in our industry, because it's the one that in a certain way feeds us and is central for the financial success of our enterprise. We are going to talk about sales and how it's done right in the 21st century. I have the very special privilege to welcome Mr. Eric Shaver, managing partner of Kensey Partners, a prominent sales consultancy firm who has been a very successful account executive himself all of his career, and today is advising sales professionals on how to excel at their jobs. That being said, this is what we are going to do in this masterclass in sales. And since neither Eric's competence nor his great personality can be squeezed in one episode only, we did a two part podcast out of this, so you will get the first part today and the second part next week. Overall, 3 hours of premium content that will help you to become a master seller yourself. And especially in 2021, it is of utter importance that you reflect heavily on how to do your job. Because, as Eric says, in past years, dump money forgave bad behavior reasons and bad routines. But dump money has gone away, money has shifted, so have power and control structures. There is different criteria now, so the bad news is, your legacy relationships don't matter anymore. The rush to the cloud does the rest. It disrupts our profession with the consequence. When IT spends for a capex, you sold to the IT. Since cloud, this spend is now opex, so business departments decides on what happens. So on this first part, we talked about many other topics about how to approach and sell to business, on what you should build your relationship on, and that trusted advisors don't sell software nor cloud subscriptions. You learn, what is the great corrupter of your pipeline, the right way to talk about money, how you qualify properly, the sins of sales and why sales should not be the extension of marketing. Also why discounts are false friends and kill your success in the long run and how you should correctly handle funding, where and when. And this is just the beginning. So if you're working in sales or sales supporting roles, buckle up because this double episode is quite a ride. This is going to be as candid as can be here at the SAP Experts Podcast. Welcome, Eric. Hi, Alex. Eric, while preparing for this episode, I came across, of course, of the name of John H. Patterson, who was an industrialist in, I think, in 1882, he bought out and became the owner of a company called NCR, National Cash Register, which was at that time, not surprisingly, a manufacturer of cash registers. It still exists and is successful today in tech, but the reason I mentioned Sean Patterson is that he became famous as a sales innovator because mm. when he was looking for ways to develop the company, he found out that the biggest competitive disadvantage of NCR was a sales force that was not up to the task. And he found out that after a salesperson of his company has had a conversation with a prospective buyer, the buyer did not want to buy a cash register from NCR anymore. If the, even though they are or were interested in buying a cash register beforehand. So in a way, he found out you cannot bore a customer into a deal. So <laughs> that's why he, he invented those still modern instruments like the sales play and all this stuff and made NCR a powerhouse in this industry. But long story short, this is a story from the late 1800s. But to be honest, it still sounds not completely unfamiliar today. So please tell me how much better have we become, especially in our industry, since then?
1: That is the best loaded question in sales. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I, I would argue that what he had started is still probably the most persistent model that we all still follow, right? And that's yeah. there's a there's a there's a bigger discussion here, but the shortest the shortest phrase I can give you that that has kept us stuck in this process-centric world, this vendor-centric world, is called demand dependency. And I'll have much to say on this topic, but sales processes require demand to work. This may sound like sacrilege, but it is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. And things, certain things have never gotten better in my entire career and from what I've seen prior to. Prospecting prospecting i i can is is a one small deviation i'm sure from where it was back in mm. in his day it has not evolved and it, it, why well that's a whole different discussion but yeah i'd say we're only a small deviation from 18 70 80 90 uh, i think that's just a sad truth so to start with the
0: baseline before we go and because we have prepared and and so you have prepared a really um really complete set of of what what we can call your masterclass, and probably we'll call this episode masterclass in selling because I think it's that. If you like, we can I can offer you an alternative name for the episode. We can also call it the art of the deal. Uh, I think that's been taken. It may it may attract the wrong people here, but um <laughs> Let's start with first with the worst practices in selling because I think they are sometimes the easiest and most entertaining ones. Because in our, let me start with one that's still stuck in my head when we had our conversations in preparing mm. it. You said something I I experienced myself. Like as a conversation started the sentence, do you have budget? And I think this this is really a classic, you never should talk or start a conversation with a customer like that?
1: Ever, you shouldn't start it, you shouldn't end it, you shouldn't do it in the middle. Yeah, there, there are certain things in our profession that are so corrupted, that have just been accepted as general practice that nobody questions them. And yeah. if I was running the zoo, you probably heard me use this silly expression before, I would have excised the word budget from every single sales training book, every single process model and everything else. Uh, yeah. The, uh, yet everyone's been taught it either directly as part of just you know ask this question, qualify this way. They've been taught something more structured like BANT, where the B in BANT is budget. It's the first thing that you're supposed to qualify for. Um, it is the absolute worst word in sales, and it's a simple. It's 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 simple when you think about it logically. If you talk about budgets, you're then limited to budgets, and mm-hmm. but there is never enough budget for 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 what we were asking them to fund. Budgets live lower in the org chart. They're delegated, mm-hmm. right? We're supposed to be going to the sea level. If you think about every job description for enterprise sales it must have sea level selling experience. Yeah. And then we have to know band. It's like so the very thing that the sea level has delegated down mm-hmm. right and and is not at their level anymore to speak of, they don't live in that world of budgets you're starting with something, if you want to get to the sea level that immediately says you belong there, not here. But yeah, it's it was, I, as I understand it, BANT and this must be urban legend, BANT was an answer to show up and throw up and spray and pray, right? If I'm not mistaken, I can't remember, it was IBM or Xerox or some mm-hmm. big company said, we've got to stop people coming in and just 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 talking at people and presenting. We have to get some form of, you know, interactivity query and all this, but in an effort to, 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 to make the situation better, what it did is it forced um, corrupted answers into the process. And that's, and if you ask anyone, what's your budget, mm-hmm. right? They know exactly if you're a salesperson, especially, but anybody, they immediately know what you're doing. They immediately grab their wallet and, and, and cover it up and they know, It's time to start lying because especially now, especially I come from a software background in software. It's never a question of will we get a discount? It's always how much are we going to get? So as soon as you ask me about my budget, especially out of context of any type of returns, well, the negotiations have begun. I'm going to set a very low bar or I'm going to lie to you and force you to 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 give me resources on a budget that doesn't exist it is the it is the great corruptor of pipelines it gives
0: but but let me point still on that a bit so because we, we start this conversation with there is no sell without demand i when i'm a seller i'm of course want to find out if there is a demand um yes it's it can be of course be a way to try to find out if there is at all a budget available as kind of an identificator that a demand or a certain amount of demand is there. I'm just putting this up. I'm not saying like this is logical or a good thing or something, but this could be something of of the motivation. Then what what
1: would be the better way to find out? Yes. So, so this is, as you can imagine, I've got many answers to this. So the first problem right in sales is that we were not taught how to properly talk about money right and and talking about budget is a taking it's a, it's an effort to take from somebody it's an effort to extract both information and 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 then ultimately take capital from someone and anybody's going to react poorly to that so there are ways to do this properly to talk about money properly to properly financially qualify to properly determine if i'm dealing with someone with that authority but doing it in the right way so the right way to talk about money Especially when you're viewed, no matter what we do as salespeople, whether they asked us into the room or we barged into the room without, without their permission, they know why we're there. They know exactly why we're there. We're there to, to create a financial event for ourselves, right? We're there to take some money. Skilled business people, and this is what most of what I learned that I teach, I didn't learn from salespeople. I was in a lot of startup companies, and I learned by watching you know, Harvard Business School trained CEOs who are management consultants, execute business conversations. And the better way to talk about money, which is really the conversation, is to first guide, right? money. So there's certain things that are just standards in humanity. Most humans are uncomfortable talking about money. It makes us uncomfortable. We were taught as children, it's gauche, it's rude, it's personal, right? And that's that's inside our limbic systems in our brains from our childhood, right? And then that's why a lot of people could never go into sales. Like I couldn't do that. That's, I feel dirty. I feel greasy. I sell slippery, all that stuff. That's okay. More for us, for salespeople. But we were also taught, you know, certain practices around social distance and not intruding and not, you know, so you, you, you were organically uncomfortable with this. But if you take it purely to business, right? If I'm here to talk to you about, Assets. I have assets. If I'm at the C level, they're assets and not products or services solutions. C level doesn't care about those things. If I have a business asset that on its own financial merits is being funded by their peers, therefore validated in the space as an operational asset that's worth funding. Then I should be able to talk about, you know, how that asset turns into money. There's this big mystery around if I sell software, you know, do I understand how it's monetized? And it's monetized differently, industry to industry. Uh-oh, now we're getting into work and I have to invest in all this. But the better way to talk about budget is to first acknowledge or even, even give them permission for it not to be there, even if it's there. So, Alex, if I want to talk to you about, about the possibility of funding our assets, I'll say, Alex, first and foremost, when I'm initiating the conversation like I did, I called you. There's never a budget it's it's mid march there's no budget if there was a budget you you or more importantly someone below you would have called us and at least started a process of understanding you know our pricing and all this so let's first acknowledge whenever i speak to your peers there's almost never allocated budgets or budgeted funds but this isn't a budgeted investment this this actually is more investment capital This is money that would source from your balance sheet. This might even source from you issuing some debt, given the the nature of the cost structures. But before we even get into that, I want to walk you through the returns that this is proving in your space that is justifying your peers giving unbudgeted capital because of the returns it's driving for their business and their shareholders that makes this a compelling investment. I'm taking budget off the table. I'm making everyone comfortable with the fact that that you have to tell me if there's budget now. Well, no, 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 wait a minute, there's budget for this. Okay, that's rare. And that'll be a piece of it, but I guarantee you it won't be enough to cover the investment we're talking about since you didn't plan for it. So I'm doing this thing where I'm basically saying, it doesn't matter to me whether Mm. you have a budget, right? You spend money as 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 a business, you spend money all the time over the course of a fiscal year on unbudgeted things. This is one of those things. And I'm gonna give you just like someone internally, I'm going to give you a justification for that that's predicated on some objective validation outside of us. If it's a good idea, we'll keep talking. If it's a bad idea and it's financial merits, we'll stop talking. And this is, you know, once you know this as a salesperson, it's it's liberating, right? I can qualify someone financially just by talking about money in a very rational, reasonable, calm business fashion. Not, you know, because when we say budget, someone's we don't have any budget. You start, you you almost automatically, if it's lower in the org chart, you get defensiveness. If it's higher in the org chart, it's if you wanted to talk budgets, why didn't you just go talk to someone who reports to me? I've delegated that already. So why are we talking? It just demonstrates this thing that I talk about a lot and when I teach is that we have to demonstrate what's called professional proofing. Wait, do we belong there? Are we demonstrating we know how to be there by what comes out of our mouth, with the with the 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 expertise that we speak with, with the gravitas, you know, we're hoping to speak with some gravitas, some some bass in our voice, some timber, right? This is what I do, not not the nervous, you know, upward inflecting question where I'm not even sure what I just said.
0: And but
1: from what you
0: say, um, what what I learn now is uh, in a certain way that, of course, we have to acknowledge in a certain way that talking about money in that aspect is. If you do it right from the start, it's unnatural. It's Mm. something which may not bring you forward. But if you uh, go to the level where everybody will agree, at least everybody with a certain level of rationality, that um, good things cost money and they cost a certain amount of money. You first have to point out about the good things that you have to sell and the prospects and the advantages and um, what you can deliver. And then... When when the customer has gotten this kind of message, it hasn't realized for themselves what's in for him, then the talk about the money later on becomes natural.
1: Yes. The the you know the, the the problem with money conversations is that they people like to deflect them because it is uncomfortable, it is hard, and it's even worse when you're talking to somebody who isn't comfortable doing it themselves or doesn't know how to structure the narrative, then everyone starts getting uncomfortable. You know, the, the, the problem sales faces is, is that everyone knows why you're there. As soon as they know your title, as soon as they know your role or your remit, they know why you're there. And then it becomes the snake in the parlor that everyone knows is there and we're just waiting for that moment and it, everyone knows it's coming. And the best way to deal with it is to put it in the front. Right, and you know, the, the beauty, you know, so there's also a place and a time to talk about money. And this is another problem, and it's a, it's a flaw in the model, right? Whether someone, you know, finds our company, calls up and says, I want a demo. It's a common path in software. That's never at the executive level. That's someone in the middle of the org chart who cares about what software does and looks like in the UI and all this. And so one thing we know immediately, if someone finds me, that beautiful demand I'm hoping for, okay, that's pipeline. It's easier than prospecting, and I'll just throw it in there and say it's qualified. We we ask these pro forma questions that we know are corrupted. We say, well, we're happy to give you a demo. Just a couple things you need to understand before we do that. You know, has there been has a budget been allocated for this project? Is a project assigned? You know, uh, you know, how will you fund this? All these questions from someone who has no funding authority, right? Who has, or even if they do, every deal every deal, especially in publicly traded companies, is as fragile as the financial performance of the quarter in which you're speaking to someone. Hmm. So they may have the best intentions in the world, but you have organically have assets that that won't be, the decision won't be made, the due diligence won't be done for three or four quarters. And the intent is absolutely pure in this quarter, but then all of a sudden, nothing as severe as a, a, a pandemic hitting, but they have a bad quarter as a company. And it has nothing to do with your deal, but the CFO clamps down on and redacts budgets or freezes budgets and all that. That had nothing to do with you, right? But we start, We said, okay, they said they have a budget. They said they had a project. They said they were empowered, but we didn't get to the people right up front before we started spending our company's precious SGNA dollars at either a road profit or enhanced profit and say, before we engage in this project, other words that sales have never learned to use. This is a project. you know. You, inside, we call it a deal. You don't call it a deal. You call it a project, and so do we. Before we staff it and fund it, we need to speak to the people who are going to operationalize this, who are expecting returns on this asset that's going to contribute to your spread as a company on your return on asset calculations. All I've done there, very, very subtly, hopefully, is just spoke way above this person's pay grade. As soon as I started talking about ROA, I'm talking about CFO measures, COO measures, and I'm making, I'm trying to make them a little uncomfortable. I'm trying to make them say, "I'm sorry, that's not something I care about, and we never do that." Or your competition isn't asking for that. There's my first red flag. You're not, now you're trying to leverage my competition to get me to give you something when you know I'm just simply asking for something very reasonable right? We need to talk to the people who can say even if our company performs poorly, these are the criteria for this not to fall into a budget freeze because now we understand, or not, how this is a strategic asset regardless of budgets. So the the flaw with budgets too is there very well could be a budget and they're telling the truth, which is rare, right? But now I've trapped myself into the cage of a budget for external factors that how many of us can say the deal was, I remember flying out to California to go to go do a, a meeting with a company, even with the CIO and the CTO, and we arrived. They, they walked us in. They didn't let us into the building. They said, we need to talk to you. They took us to the other side of the lobby, and they said, we just announced that we got acquired. Fly home. We can't do anything. I was like, I just flew here from Boston, <laughs> right? Couldn't you have told us that? They didn't know. They were in a quiet period. They were not high enough. That was nobody's fault. Mm-hmm. So we ate, I don't know, 1500 dollars of, of, of airfare and zero came. You can't say I went back. My C, my CEO said, you can't do anything about that. I said, that is an extreme example. But yeah, that's these are things that we're simply not taught. And it's how many more times do we have to get slapped before we say, Maybe we should try something a little differently. Maybe we should say no until this happens. Otherwise, we can't engage. But I always say the um, there's this um,
0: quite famous telling um, of what's the definition of insanity, like continuing doing <laughs> the same things over and over and expecting different results it's more or less the same because when when you say about the way we've talked we talk about it i learned from from my it may sound a bit profane of course in your ears since you're the <laughs> professional and i'm an, an amateur in that craft but um the tone of the conversation for example by talking to these people depends on which kind of let's say budget buckets you talk like if you keep that like for example we all, always tend to do, like SAP always tends to do, like the whole business tends to do. When we talk about, let's say, a software is in a technical way. Mm. And we have the discussion, for example, with the IT, we are always in that cost case trap, yeah, because we yes. are having a technical discussion. So it's always a cost case thing. So you talk about POCs, and you talk about ROIs and so on, you have to justify that. And those buckets are always quite, quite small in mm. my experience, and quite yes. heavily heavily locked and closed. But when you manage to talk about business, you talk about the strategic implications and so on, and the benefits in that where you talk in a completely or you talk about completely different budget buckets. And those strategic budget buckets are, most of the cases, not even only bigger, but they open up more easily because they have a mm. purpose. Yeah? They are not for the efficiency but, or the, the they are not for the efficiency of the IT, but they are for the effectiveness of your business
1: outcome. Absolutely. The, the, the other thing is, you know, there's great, there's many sins in our profession that I, I would argue uh, are sins uh, accidentally versus, you know, it's 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 not intentionally a sin we're committing, but they happen anyway, is that an unfortunate problem is that sales has become in many ways, and this is not a knock on marketing, but an extension of marketing in a lot of ways. If you're dependent upon leads, if you're dependent on a BDR or an SDR to initiate something for you, a lot of times that isn't creating it's it's making enough calls until we hit some demand and then all of a sudden we were in the game, but you know there's a need. Obviously, if someone is in the market, you know, you want to persuade them, guide them towards your assets versus alternatives. The problem is ha- there's a big change that happened the tectonic shifts in sales, and there've been, you know, a few of them, but two of the biggest tectonic shifts in my lifetime—that's all I can certainly speak to. Um, you know, so it's about 29 years of total experience, maybe, maybe 31, uh, in sales or in the profession, in one way, shape, or form. The 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 first tectonic shift was supposed to be the Internet 1.0. Yeah. Right, Internet 1.0 was—we all know this because Pets.com and my wife worked for a, an enterprise, uh, you know, uh, e-commerce company that went public and then died. Right, was disintermediation. Brick and mortar was going to be disintermediated. Salespeople were going to be disintermediated. Everything could be done through the World Wide Web. I love people used to call it that. That's how old I am. But that was—that was the threat. And salespeople could go away, and all those expense structures of your sales go to market. We can get rid of quota carriers and replace them with a shell script, right? Yeah. And, and all this stuff, and just get customer service people. It didn't come true, right? Because, and it was good for us as enterprise salespeople, mainly enterprise, because buying an enterprise asset, especially an enterprise software asset, is very risky, complicated, and expensive. And it's not just the cost of the software and the services, the potential disruption to the business, to processes, to models, that is more expensive than all of it, especially if you consider scale. So luckily, what we learned was Internet 1.0, right? You still have the websites and they force you to fill out a form. And if you didn't fill out the form properly, you didn't get the white paper you wanted. That was really just a means of getting a lead. And then within seconds or minutes, you'd get a call from a salesperson. Um, but all of the decision support cards were still mainly held by the vendors. There was very little out there that you could find that would help you make a decision or you had to pay for it. You had to call it, pay Gartner and all The shift happened with internet 2.0, right? The social internet, all of a sudden, it's like Napster lets you steal music, right? Yeah. Until it finally got cut off. People could share decision support information and it was in their interest to do so right? Mm -hmm. Because that was us against the vendor. The more knowledge we have, knowledge is power. We can keep the vendor at arm's length for longer. When you couple that with the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009, now everyone had a financial incentive to help each other. And what you saw was sales lost a lot of control and a lot of the things that used to force people to us, and, and and that that is uh, absolute truth. And if you look at the studies that were done years ago by corporate executive board and serious decisions, and everybody's seen this in sales, fifty-seven to sixty-eight percent of a decision is done before vendors are contacted. Because I can get a lot by you know engaging my peers virtually and do. I got I got a great tip from a CIO in Singapore who's in the same space who's bought this before and said, no 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 no, here's the way to do it right? Because we're not directly in each other's space. Anyway, so there, I, I, I don't know how I got off on this track, but I, I went there with vigor. But these changes are are, are existential for us, Yeah. you know, and, and we're still doing things by an older playbook, while everything and then COVID shifted again. So, you know, this whole NCR way of doing things, we all know it's not great. And yet we're still doing it. Maybe because even
0: in the world of of enterprise software it's still a very personal decision and that even though we try to change that kind of sales process we are tools and services and these reports and uh,
1: but still it's like people buy for people
0: and probably oh. that has not changed or am i completely wrong
1: no no no. i well so i want to add to that right okay um so we've over-indexed and Challenger or the corporate executive board did their whole, you know, uh, they 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 basically set up all the archetypes of selling and the relationship salesperson was always predominant and has been predominant, right? And 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 the whole taking the CIO out for stakes and a match and all this other stuff, the entertainment, because if you like me, you're more likely to buy from me. What we didn't, and there, there's truth to that, absolutely, but that's when there was more dumb money in the system. Right. When there was more dumb money in the system that could cover their tracks. I.T. had bigger budgets. You know, it was maybe a little bit more about political capital than actual returns on the software. You know that I'd say it was dominant for a reason, because a lot of people could hit their number doing that. But as soon as as soon as the money shifted, the global financial crisis and what ensued what Christine Lagarde has called the new mediocre. All of a sudden, a lot of that dumb money went away, right? And all of a sudden, relationship selling didn't have the subsidy that it needed, right, to to work. And there's a great line from Joe Strummer of the Clash in one of the interviews he had, and he said, "When big when big money comes in, big money does not mess around." He didn't say mess, but you probably get it. But when 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 money shifts in a meaningful way, the power structures shift, the control paths shift. People still do buy from people, um, but there's different criteria now, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because a lot of the people who formed relationships in IT, IT lost their control path, you know, and now you were seeing with the cloud, you're seeing funding coming from other sources. And these other sources, the CFO doesn't need new friends, right? Now, if if you show an executive how to create business value, they will like you a heck of a lot more than if you both have common interests in the same football club. But there's, a, there's, a, there's another side to that coin. Um, I spent many years in startups and I sat through many venture capital meetings. And one of the things I learned very quickly is that venture capitalists will often weigh the team that they're funding as much or more than the cool product or algorithm they've come up with. Yeah. And, but that's a different people buying from people. That's, I'm looking for competency. That competency comes through these people, expertise, right? How many of these surgeries have you done before? I think we've taken this whole people buy from people and looked at it too much as, do you like me? As opposed to, do you see me as competent? Because that human in the loop, Mm -hmm. But a lot of these, a lot of big enterprise software companies don't realize that at the executive level, they're not as caught up in the software. They look at the software as a commodity. Yeah, okay. You have some things that... But most, a lot of other companies do what you do. Are you the right people to take us there? Do you possess the industry expertise? Do you possess you know, the financial knowledge? Are you the people that see what we're trying to do? And can you correlate those things with your assets or not? Oh, and by the way, we like the same football club, but that is not really going to be our criteria. So there's truth to it, but <laughs> where the money lives, they're not looking for new friends. Who's on LinkedIn all the time? Salespeople and recruiters. You don't see executives, you know, unless they're selling something, which is fine if you're selling something as an executive, but you're clearly doing that.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But since we, we start talking about the top three versus practice and selling from your side, we've already been through two. So if there would be a third one, you want so, to point out which so,
1: this is what I came up with initially when you know, I, I you, you posed that. I thought of three key things that are really as as broader practices. Uh-huh. One is we talked about demand dependency. Yeah. One of the big ones is failure to guide the team internally. There's this great dysfunction in our profession that is that starts with the education system, right? And that is this is what starts the divide between us. For all intents and purposes, you cannot get a university degree in sales. I don't mean a sales and marketing degree. That's usually 80% marketing and 20% sales. I mean a dedicated degree to sales and everything that that would require. You could easily fill a four-year baccalaureate curriculum with that, um, which, which gets to something else is that sales is not a soft skill. Sales involves soft skills, but sales is a hard skill. Sales is a practice that has to be learned just like any other profession. You have to understand corporate finance. You have to understand how financial decision-making works. That in and of itself requires a lot of learning. You have to be, I would argue, you've gotta be certified as a program manager, product and program manager, because that's what B2B selling is. And that actually is something a buyer might care about. Mm -hmm. Certainly not your sales process. Um, You have to understand social psychology. Right. You know, we'll listen to Amy Cuddy on, on TED Talks and say, what a brilliant social psychologist or Robert Cialdini, these well-known social psychologist academics whose whole life is about influence, persuasion, how to make people comfortable with you through the intangibles that are in our lizard brain that you can do very little to to do. It's the, it, these happen almost instantly. We have to understand that because we live in a world of persuasion. Manipulation is the is the ugly, you know, evil cousin of persuasion. And that's the problem is that often we look to be look like manipulators, as opposed to legitimate, you know, persuaders who have a, an agenda that is would be mutually agreed upon as beneficial if you're if you're doing it right. But what we we leave university with degrees that don't help us sell. Even if you have a business or finance degree, it's still very thin for the profession. We have to execute. It takes us years. Sales is a experiential profession. No matter what you learn in the classroom, you've got to learn things by doing them. And it takes us years to develop competency and expertise. And we feel, we feel it as salespeople. We feel the benign neglect or slight derision we're getting from engineering. If we're in a software company, you know, software engineering says, my software is selling the software. If the software wasn't any good, you couldn't do anything. You have an economics degree. You don't even understand what it does, right? So let's let's talk reality. All the engineering teams I've ever worked with the the software developers say our elegant code is why people are buying this, right? And the marketing team, you can get a PhD in marketing, right? Are saying our brilliant positioning, branding and messaging, you know, and there's truth to that. But they look at sales, you know, when sales tries to enter the narrative, we get this look like, please, the adults are talking. Mm -hmm. We'll give you a sales play and go execute against it. Sales develops, whatever skills sales develops, it's developed in isolation. You it takes years to develop sales skills, truly B two B sales skills. If marketing doesn't have that opportunity opportunity to do that, and no education they can turn to, they're guessing. It's in, it's inference engineering, same way. the 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 teams that support them, who are industry people, who are who are you know these value engineers, none of them have sold. So what sales does is we cross our arms and we we get defensive and we harumph if we're not getting the the leads we want or the sales place we want or the messaging we want. But what we don't do is we don't look internally and say, there's no way you could possibly know how to do what we do because it took years of execution for me to get here, regardless of where I am. I need to have you understand you're giving me the wrong assets. You're giving me the wrong messaging for the execution I'm required to do. Sales should say to marketing, thank you for the deck. 40 slides, very informational. I have two to 15 seconds to interrupt an executive. Unless you can distill this down to two to 15 seconds and target it to their KPIs and their sub industry or industry, it's going to be irrelevant to them. And I don't see that.
0: So even an elevator pitch would be
1: far too huge for that purpose. Elevator pitches are a message for everyone. Usually their mm-hmm. general purpose, there is no such thing as that's a branding message, right? That's mm-hmm. a, that elevator pitches are really just branding messages, a pitch that's gonna resonate. So I had, a, I, I love telling this story. I'll, I promise I can do it quickly. I had a COO who's an engineer by training in one of the startups I was in, who said, Eric, the problem with salespeople, I, you, no conversation is ever gonna be good if someone says the problem with your people. I said, the problem with salespeople, I was in a sales role. He said, is there all thrust, no vector? and 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 i was like uh, ted please translate that for me what are you talking about and what he meant was which what it sounds like lots of energy right lots of energy lots of that but like that balloon
0: you puff up and then just yes and let it it go
1: everywhere right (laughs) no focus right and that really resonated with me he said look when people are trying to take my money I don't wanna hear about their company history. I don't wanna hear about their leading, I don't care. I wanna know, I'm a COO in an ISV that's funded with venture capital. We're we're at this point in our business cycle and these are our objectives, which are pretty easy to figure out if you sell in this space. So what's your message for a COO in an ISV who's got fairly probably predictable KPIs? Go. Oh, and by the way, if you can't back it up with some peer level validation, now I'm getting this from a biased source with a quota, so I'm mean, I'm automatically you know I know we're looking ahead here, but so these are things where sales suffers, but we don't say to the people who, who who are our supply chain, the spec is wrong, I need to give you a proper spec. We just get righteously indignant when they they don't they don't get it right, or we don't we don't we don't establish with the team that supports us. Look, I'm I'm spending you. As a resource, every time I have you do a demo, every time I have you do a meeting, every time we do a write board session, we're costing the company money that's coming out of our SGNA funds. And we have to set the criteria for those people to say, I will only do that if this level of qualification occurs. We've had this level of engagement up here. That's my promise to you. But when I need you, we're going to have to put you into a, a project plan. I need your help with that. Because I'm going to need your calendar. I, I'm going to need to know. I'm going to, uh, you know, there's going to be tasks that have to be done. You're working 17 other projects, deal project. I have to understand where that fits in. I need to know when and where I can offer you, even if that's three weeks from now. Because, but we have to have a plan internally if I'm going to be a proper program manager, and that's our fault. Like that's our sin. We we're responsible for this team, but instead, what happens? We spend them like a drunken sailor. Someone says, I want a demo. We're like, can do. Mm. And then we, we we go pressure people for getting on their calendars. So the, the P&L mindset is also very rare in sales because we're not paid against a P&L requirement. And these all intertwine. I'm sorry, you're getting me monologuing. But no you know, problem. <laughs> salespeople should have a P&L mindset, not because we're paid on margin, but because of the scarcity of resources and time that we have, if we don't operate as if every resource that we, we commit requires a time and materials invoice to the buyer, then we're giving them the way too cheaply or too free too, too, for free. That's a sin. You cannot, if you treat your resources as free, your prospects and customers will. And that's what's happened in this, in the, in the whole industry. A buyer asks, a buyer asks, we deliver.
0: So so often you, you get that vibe. In those kind of workshops and so on. That there was somebody yeah, who thinks like more helps more. Yeah. So I'm putting more people into it, <laughs> more experts into it, I'm putting more, the agenda has to be even, even more crowded with topics, more yeah. or less relevant, because yeah, if if I if I have not at least done like 120% in putting things into it, probably I did not try hard enough
1: yeah that's where the old joke comes from. We had a ten legged sales call, an eight legged sales call. Yeah. it's like, you know, let's get the more, the more. let's do a show of force, right? Yeah. And that it's dilution more than it is value
0: add that that's what what I, to be honest, um said sometimes that sometimes I have the feeling that um, especially in our industry, we try to win by
1: outnumbering our customers, yeah, in the workshops, yeah and and all that tells them is your your resources are must be pretty cheap <laughs> right <laughs> or or you know and we've all had that meeting yeah. where there were four of us from the vendor and only one person shows up even though they said several more would it, what we should do is send send three of them home okay mm-hmm. you guys can leave <laughs> right you yeah. know yeah. You're, you're tired we've already spent the money on gas or the airplane but your time is too valuable it's, I, I, you should say sorry do you have a, a room where they can work on other things while we talk but <laughs> we well, never do that right because oh that's you can't do that
0: I, I tell you one story from my side because i was once involved in i'm not saying for which company I, at, let's say one of the last big presentations before the deal was closed um, it was again like we said quite interesting i was i was doing the presentation. But we were there with like 12 people. Like head of XYZ, chief of outgoing income. I do not know which kind of titles there was. I've never heard them before. The One of the executives asked me like, um, he leaned over and said like, tell me who are all these people? And he said like, sir, I think the best idea would be, I was quite young at that time, mm. if you would ask themselves. And then he went after the workshop to each and everyone and said, I want I again wanted to introduce my, myself and I wanted to ask you like what was your added value to this workshop. Mm. Yeah and and this made it so clear for me exactly what you said like um less is more in that case be authentic bring the essence in there condense it and then it helps more to to bring your message over than just doing that what you'd said like outnumbering trying to impress by the amount of people you pack together to meet them. It, it never helps. Never.
1: Yeah. You know, that's that whole line that you'll get more attention from someone if you whisper than shout. Yeah. And, 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 well, you know, there, there are certain, I, I, again, I, you know, having done what I do for 12 years and stepped outside of being in a company, you know, it's amazing when you can start looking at the broader aperture and see what's going on in a space. And now you're advising business and, and teaching and doing all this is that, You know, there's a lot of just corrupted, let's say, corrupted practices. And one of the words that also, again, if I was running the zoo, I would have killed the expression, over deliver and exceed expectation. That means by its very nature that you're committing more than they are. And that's that's not how it's supposed to work. If we have equal uh, interest, Right in, in 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 proceeding for our own for our own interests. Right, they're not there to see us get a quota. They're not there to see us serve our shareholders. They're there to serve their shareholders. Right. If there's equal interest, we should never be out of balance or over committing, or at least in the on the average. But this whole thing, you know, get there before your competition, do more than your competition, be the first one in. To me, translates to look like you have nothing else to do. Look like you're desperate hmm <laughs> I don't know if that's the best look on people <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> you know act the part if you're the industry leader be busy people you know I joke with salespeople I say you know if you've ever lived through the the the, the delight of putting an addition on your house yeah we had a hundred year old mm-hmm. house it was we were outgrowing it my kids were getting bigger it's either move or, or put an addition on if you're ever willing to, 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 to live through that right um I say to salespeople, if you've ever lived through that, you do what people do when they buy enterprise technology. You never get one quote. You get many quotes. Because I don't know. I've never done this before. Um, should I trust these people? I've heard you can't trust developers and builders, right? So everyone knows that, right? At least in America. So I got to get three quotes. And then that, I got to that, learn. That's a global truth. It's standard, yeah? yeah. And then I got I to <laughs> learn from these people, right? Um, but the idea is, you get your quotes, you talk to them, you start doing the beauty contest, you determine who you like more. You 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 always throw away the lowest quote, but you keep that to beat the other two up with, to use that as pretending you want that one. But then they tell you, "Okay, great. You get the two saying, "Okay, here's what I can do." And one of them says, "I can start on Monday." And the other one says, "I can't start for 2 months." I can't even I can't even begin this project for 2 months. Which one do you wanna work with? And most humans will say, I want the one who's two months out. I said, why? Because they're busy. The one who's sitting around, the one who could start immediately, they're they're not in demand for a reason. Even if I'm wrong, the perception is, unless I found this unbelievably serendipitous gap in their, their, their calendar, we want to work with busy people. We want them, we want validation. By 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 our peers, that you know, these people are in demand. It it seems counterintuitive, but of course, I want my house done as quickly as possible, but I want it done correctly. <laughs> and 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 we should follow that same model, right? We it's funny, I, I say to sales all the time, would you take the prospecting call that you just made if you were on the receiving end of it? Would you respond to that? Would you have said, let's meet? And then all of a sudden I get that look like no probably not yeah. <laughs> then can you blame them
0: <laughs> that, that that's that's so true it's the same with the with the old rfp stuff when you have a request for proposal and you have like certain parties uh, returning the offers you know that there will be always one one offering company who misunderstood the requirements and yeah. is too cheap yeah of course yeah, yeah. They, they they still exist uh, because they get their they they get their offers, then they, they they get their, their their deals and so on, but probably that was not the one you wanted.
1: Yes. Yeah. And and, and it's funny, we, we we this is what we do. We we act counter to our own human behavior and yeah. execute as if it somehow is in some magical zone where it doesn't apply. It's like no, that so I, I say salespeople suffer from an industrial disease that we only we get it's only for quota carriers right so we get accused of having attention deficit problems and largely because that's true but as i as i as i showed you but we also suffer from this disease called qidd not adhd but qidd what's that it's it's quota induced dissociative disorder <laughs> as soon as we get a quota we dissociate from human reality and the pressure of that quota makes us do things that act as if we are not from the same planet and don't have the same emotions and feelings and and, and responses to the stimuli that we're giving people. Um, it's really quite amazing. And most people will laugh about that and say, yeah, you're right. Quota, de, quota makes me do some unnatural things, especially yeah. if I'm not going to hit it. So, yeah, this is our world.
0: Yeah, but but I think this is something which is really...
1: I, I'm listening to what you say and and to the
0: points, and so on. I really can can tick mark every one of them because in in, in a certain way, even if I'm not like 100 in the sales role, but in a let's say pre sales customer advisory role, this is really what happens all the time, yeah. And and uh, which I'm not sure is it so easy to get rid of these kinds of let's say bad habits things like that or is it something that we you, you would when you're caught in in these bad habits i, I just call them bad habits but I have no they bad are word for it um is it would it be really a completely redefinition of your of your
1: job of of, of your approach to things as a salesperson? person so that's a great question right and and i would argue no it's not a complete rewrite yeah it's it's the so if you look at our role as a salesperson, we, we really have two roles, right? Mm-hmm. Our, you know, for for our company, our job is profitable revenue acquisition. That's really what our role is. We have to try to bring in the most profitable revenue possible. That's why there's qualification. That's why. But, you know, we don't usually think about the profitability of our revenue, but we should be thinking about that. Um, it's sacrilege to say this, but compensation structure should be based on revenue profitability, not just top line. It should be on net revenue, not gross, you know, gross revenue. But the, 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 that part of our job, the job, the part where we speak in an unmistakable sales dialect, where we, 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 it's, it's our process. It's our qualification. It's our objection handling. It's our closing, all that stuff. That's necessary internally. Right. That that provides a common language and a, an execution motion around the revenue acquisition that a company has to perform. So it's not that there's no value in it. It's it's you have to understand it and know it because the operationally you need it. But as soon as you leave the building, as soon as you you, you go externally with that. That language and that process has almost no value to the prospect or the customer. They don't care about your sales process. They don't care about your your need to qualify them. They don't care about your profit. If they have it their way, they'll they'll have you sell this to them for a 98% discount and sleep like a baby at night. That's your problem. Um, So it's not so much getting rid of things as it is adding the other half of what we never learned. So we learned the first half of our jobs that met the company's requirements. What a surprise. But we didn't learn the half that the buyer values, which is, instead of telling me about your sales process, which I don't care about, tell me about how my peers perform due diligence on these assets objectively. You know, don't speak to me about your brand. You know, every salesperson has been taught you wanna be a trusted advisor. Good luck with that. I don't know many senior executives who say, we have a severe business problem. Will someone please call my account manager, right? Um, it's they turn to Accenture, they turn to McKinsey, they turn to Bain, right? They What we don't do is we don't approach, you know, if you want to be a trusted advisor, it doesn't mean it's out of the realm of possibility, but these are more additive skills, right? So instead of your sales process, Walk me through the due diligence required for this class of assets that you represent. Transcend your brand. Otherwise, you're not going to be seen as trusted. You're going to be seen as biased. Transcend your brand and walk me through as if I hired you, as if you were KPMG, to advise me on ERP with the myriad of vendors we can choose from. Right? You, want to, you want to really be a value to me? Show me how to decide for the class of assets, why we should even consider it give me a due diligence plan that i can use for everyone mm-hmm. and then i'm going to look at you differently and then people say well why would i do that why would i help them potentially use this to buy my competition because then they're listening to you they're following you you know not completely but more so and now all of a sudden you know you're guiding as a trusted advisor or oh, I'm sorry. Is that not you? Didn't really want that. You just wanted to sell your brand. Well, that's different. Then go ahead and over-index on you know pressuring them to buy the logo.
0: But but maybe it's it's also a bit like that because uh, to to sell them successfully, things you have to have a certain distance. to them which you would not have if you are in that let's call it friend zone if we are in dating language uh yeah if you are if you are in that friend zone with the customer i think they do not take you seriously a lot as a salesperson anymore to ask you with their request because they're so used you have you have done so much to become a trusted advisor. I've been there in a certain way as, as, as a consultant, but I was a consultant at that time. Mm. It's not a salesperson. It's a completely different expectation, different job. You talk differently with them and they talk different, differently with you. Um, but you would never come into that position that you would be able to put that, let's say you can make that last kick into the goal. So the, the,
1: the trick here is, the trick here is, and we I talk about this all the time with sales teams you can never your your job is your job your role is your role you are you do have a quota you are here to take money you can't change that mm-hmm. that reality what you can do is change how they see you and how they engage you and if you engage me in very typical ways that most quota carriers engage me then i'm going to put you in that bucket. I may still like you if i buy something from you, we're going to start connecting. Um, but when you come to me to sell me that next thing, so we 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 haven't really, you know, accounted for in this profession that familiarity and relationships and friendliness can have positives and it often does, but there's also this expression familiarity breeds contempt. Yeah. And, and, and it's easier to say no to someone you like, because then you can say, look, I'm telling you, this is a friend, it's not going to happen, you're going to have to just put this off, but we'll be okay, right? We're good. I'm
0: not, I'm not buying from you. But please let us remain friends.
1: Yeah, we're still good, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, and then we're like, no, I was just your friend, because you, exactly. you have money. Yeah. right. That's like you know trying to get the mother to the dog to play with the, mother, the kid by the mother tying a pork chop around the kid's neck. It's like okay, the dog likes you. No, he likes the pork chop. Um, you know the idea is it went so this notion of having of being dispassionate, right? Salespeople have to learn to be dispassionate, not emotionally engaged with their deals, right? But how, that's hard to do. Money is emotional by its very nature. Money is emotional if I'm going to get paid for this and I have pay at risk, or I've got a really big deal here, that's going to affect my emotional attachment. But it takes a very strong discipline to say, look, while there might be money here, statistically speaking, we have a Mm 27.4 close rate Mm -hmm. on anyone we engage across the board. Statistically speaking, you're more likely not to commit the capital this fiscal year than you are, even if you say you're qualified. So we have to look at that for what it is. Statistically speaking, this is not going to happen. So we have to be, that's what should fuel some of our emotional detachment to say, I've got to very quickly determine from a business perspective, are you part of that 27.4% that do or don't? That's got nothing to do whether you like me or not. Sorry, but but like you said it's it's
0: so easy to get into that buddying mode when that money is involved yes because i think this is a sometimes a quite natural um reaction of humans to let's say when 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 it's all about getting the deal or not then we start to buddy because when, when we are in that friend zone we think like um we, we are we're easier with that no we call out the end of
1: the budding ae yeah, it's so there's so many things that I I I would argue that all these behaviors, all these things that we've developed over time that have become almost ossified, were allowable, were mm-hmm. forgiven, were acknowledged, like this whole notion of like 37% of, a, of any given sales force hitting their quota. Imagine any other role. Where you had 37% success and you continue to fund those roles. Let's take that to architects or doctors or engineers, right? Not a great, not a Pilots. great, not a great, yeah, not a great idea. Yeah. But there was enough dumb money in the system to forgive the ills of the system. Mm. And the dumb money, for all intents and purposes, it's not completely gone, but a lot of it has gone away. And it's been that way for about 12 years. And we're waiting for it to come back. And we're we're trying. We're just hoping that 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 things recover. We get dumb money again, and we haven't accepted the fact that the behaviors that that existed, the inefficient things that we do, only persisted because they were funded, <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. By the 37 percent of the salespeople who did hit their quota, that made it okay for the other, you know, other, the 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 rest of the the rest of the team to not, percent. And, right?
0: and, and in a certain way, they were guilty that the dumb money went away. Because dump money was spent by that.
1: Yes. And that's where CFOs started to lose faith in mm-hmm. CIOs and looked at looked at IT as the cost center that it was. I mean, look, if you want to get into all the psychology, if you look at how CIOs came to be as a C level role, like they were not always up there. They used to be the director of IT and eventually there was this inflection point. In many cases, they still are not. They they report to the CFO and that's, that's right. A, yeah. That's right. They're a report to the CFO, not a peer. Yeah. And look, I mean, it's a it's a reality that if you know your history of how this all has happened, you know, CIOs were never considered strategic to the business or very rarely unless they prove they had those chops. And they were often relegated to the kids table when it came time for the board level discussions, the real operational planning, strategic planning. And that is validated by the advent of the CDO role, the chief data, chief digital officer role. A lot of those are basically former CMOs. That's the new kid in town. Yeah, if the CIOs were so strategic, well, then why weren't they just promoted? They lived in the world of data. They lived because that really wasn't their skill set. And that is just reality. But because that's where all the money was years ago, And we could get six, seven-figure deals funded through the CIO. The CIO didn't even have the budget for some of those, but they could get it done because it's like, you guys own the software, you own the technology, we need it, fine, we'll find a way to fund it, just get a bigger discount. Um, Yeah, so that's, 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 that's the change. But then now I have to exactly point at that. Since
0: so many, especially in our business, account executives are running straight to the CIO because they have always been our best friends there. They have the mugs with our logos on it. They are not <laughs> in, in the business department. Yeah. Yeah, they're always in the IT department. They are the mugs with our logo and other logos and so on. Um, now that we found out um, that dude is broke, where
1: is the money? It's Who on the balance is- sheet. to talk to you? It's on the balance sheet as cash yeah the, the, that's muscle memory right it's it's yeah. muscle memory to go to that level and say is there any money yet um, are you yeah. strategic yet no not yet okay well, let's go get a coffee <laughs> yeah yeah it, well it'll come eventually so I mean if you look at what's happened you know so if you look at the the the, the advent and then the the popularity of the cloud in terms of where you're finding technology now you know technology yeah. is now bought as a service as a practice. And it's it's preferential, right? Mm-hmm. That old line that you don't, if you're not in the business of running a data center, why would you spend all the money on people, infrastructure, hardware, and all that, and have this massive CapEx commitment to this? Now I get it. If you know there is security of having things behind your firewall, and that's that's smarter if you've got things that are critical and proprietary, obviously. But it was also a drag on the business, right? That was a much a massive expense. That wasn't core. Aren't, isn't core to most business is operating models and their reason for being. Um, but you know, so of course there was budget allocated to this big functional area because that was how it was procured and how it was operationalized. But you know, the the, the move to the cloud was financial, right? The move to the cloud was accelerated by the global financial crisis, right? The move to the cloud was. We've got to manage our margins while the economy has decided to do what it did. Revenue has been disrupted or it's been slowed greatly. Macro and microeconomic factors are in a place that is not where we expected them to be as a standard recovery curve after a recession. And you saw CFOs making very pragmatic financial decisions. If I can spend this smaller amount on an operating budget versus this massive amount on a capital budget, if I... If the capital asset I'm locked into for five years financially, but the other one, it's an operating expense that I can unhook from right within a year or two, why wouldn't I want to give my business that flexibility and agility? Why would I want to overcapitalize something that's now a commodity? Yeah. And so the money is now living either with a line of business or it's just not being spent at all. It's not. It's sitting on the balance sheet. It's, it's it's part of the company's cash position we haven't budgeted for it if we need it and you can't cover it through your operating budgets marketing supply chain you know whatever um okay we'll find the money we spend unbudgeted capital all the time it just has to be justified so it it really took that equation to maybe we don't have to budget all this money maybe we don't <laughs> but, know what we need
0: but but that's exactly that uh, since everything is now opex or is, is moving exactly mm. in that direction. And these all these kinds of, let's say, decisions are really now made in the business, not in the IT anymore. When it was CapEx, still so many decisions were done in IT because they were yeah. the housekeeper. Yeah, they were the housekeeper. They had to look for the garden. They had to look that the garage was was was, was fine and clean and so on. They, they, they had a lot of investment decisions right yeah. there in the IT department. That has been moved away. Um, should not be the now the message out the uh, ae do not talk to it anymore
1: it, it should be it, it is um and yet the hard part is when they see you coming like when the other other functional areas see you coming with that logo on your polo shirt either virtually or literally it's usually just virtual and you're known as a vendor and you're known as a technology vendor right whether they know who you are or not they say, I don't own a technology vendor. I don't own that relationship. If I want one of their their cloud assets, well, we'll call them or we'll find them or we'll ask our VAR or we'll ask Gartner to advise us. Um, So what's happened is everybody knows, everybody's known for the last decade, stop getting stuck in IT, go to the the line of business, go to the functional area. The problem is there's so much language, linguistic uh, burn in on technology and capability and we so there's that there's that that expression which is usually used for when I get delegated down but it also is delegated across is you get delegated to the people that you sound like if you come <laughs> at me talking technology you yes. should be talking to IT why are yes. you talking to me that's that's even a
0: better expression that I always said to myself like uh, you you are talking with those people to those who have the stem the same stem on your forehead like you have? Yeah. yeah,
1: because of of your past. But this is even better. That's Bosworth. I think that was Michael Bosworth, the solution selling guy. I, yeah. I didn't even create that one, but it's true. Yeah, right? if you don't sound like me, so so this is a bigger topic, right? There's there's three things that I focus on because these are the three areas that sales just has not gotten in terms of a diet or nutrition. Sales is absolutely in the finance profession. Our job is to create revenue events, period, right? And we're the only one with that charter, right? There's no one else on the teams that support us who's carrying a quota responsible for the financial event, and we're not taught how to monetize the assets we sell in an operational way to execute the job we have to execute. We have to figure that out on our own. Sales is in a linguistic profession, language is our only real control path, and we speak the wrong dialect for most people and sales is in the engagement management business. Just like they, we, if we worked for a management consultancy, we just can't bill for time and materials directly, but we should do it through equal and opposite commitments. We should be program managers and have those certifications. It's because we have a, such a linear and, and, and singular language that only uh, uh, lands with certain roles. Of course, as soon as we we approach others, Well, language is our control path. They hear what we're saying and they're like, that's not me. You're making me uncomfortable, right? You're talking about something I don't care about. And humans are really good at making that decision really quickly, right? Especially if you've invaded my space, Mm -hmm. right? Whether it's my email space, my LinkedIn inbox space, or it's my physical space, right? You belong here or you don't. And you validate that by what comes out of your mouth. Right. And you're either indexing to me or indexing away from me. And and, and I think the biggest issue, Alex, is that we speak the wrong language. The the best description I can give most people is imagine, you know, a tourist comes up to you. You know, you're in New York City where I grew up. A Mm. tourist comes up to you, but they don't speak English and they start speaking to you in this language or they have a really strong accent. I can't understand what they're saying. They're from Glasgow. I can't understand a Glaswegian accent everyone's getting really uncomfortable really quickly because we're not communicating. Yeah. And all you know, is you want to get away from that discomfort. Right now add a quota to that. And it's like, we need to get away quickly. Right. Because mm-hmm. I don't even like your intent. Right. You're either going to use me or you're going to take from me. And that has to be solved initially by, are we speaking the right language? And are we talking about things, you know, in business to business, you're talking to somebody who's got KPIs that there should be aggressively pursuing, you're actually proposing to add something else to their list. Why would you be invading their space? Most people aren't looking for extra things to add to their list. They're looking to get things off of their list. So unless you make this something so compelling, where they're like, this is worth it, and we, and, we don't lead with that outcome first, we lead with, we start talking about, we talk to them as if they expressed interest and they didn't express any interest. Well, is it a surprise they want us to go away? You know, but that's why that, that IT motion is muscle memory, right? And hope. It's muscle memory and hope. I mean, hopefully things change today, um, but we're not going back, right? We're not going back. I don't see it.
0: So if if you want to to define that, what you've talked about until now, um, what would we call a successful seller? Is it the one who delivers numbers, like overselling and reverse transactions included, or... Is it the one who finds that kind of demand or generates that kind of demand that you've spoken to and is able to match that perfectly?
1: So this is a good question. It's uh, There's the obvious answer, and then there's what I think is the, the better answer. A successful seller as defined by any given organization is somebody who achieves their quota or their budget, right? Better yet exceeds it because we have to make up for the people who didn't, right? So yeah. your successful seller doesn't hit their target. Your successful seller gets into accelerators and does 130% of their goal or more. That is the ideal seller, right? Because it has to make up for the sins of the rest of the team. But the baseline for a successful seller is you at least hit your budget. But I would argue that is not the definition of success because there, there's, you know, I love how Challenger points this out. There's the lone wolf uh, archetype mm-hmm. of a salesperson, who manage to hit and often exceed their number, but they leave all kinds of broken glass behind them. The means by which that they secured it may not have been completely ethical. And you know, so, so you see, if you just make that your singular criteria, you're potentially getting into other problems. I would argue a successful seller is the person who brings in the most profitable revenue, who knows how to do that, bring in the most profitable revenue consistently. That's a successful seller because that has a lot of implications associated with it because that means you know how to do it, whether I have leads or not, whether I have a good territory or not, because that means you're also not dependent, right? The best sellers I've ever known, um, the most successful salespeople, uh, one, I can tell you he was the most successful person on the team. Everyone hated him and he was unethical as hell and he broke a lot of rules. The managers loved him because he made up some of that extra capital, but he eventually got fired. The best salespeople I've ever seen in my career as a salesperson or as a manager were critical thinkers and problem solvers, right? They weren't doing what everybody else was doing 15% better. They had really thought critically about what is it that I'm selling? How do people make their decisions? How do I then package this position this in such a way that is, is taking all this into account That usually requires, again, a lot of an analytical skill, and it requires you to to, to use things other than what you've been given as your toolbox, and more often than not. And the people that I've seen have done that, besides the one who've gotten luck, because there's also luck, right? Some salespeople get lucky and look good. And I I will say in my career, I'd much rather be lucky than good. But luck doesn't happen every fiscal year, right? That's true. Um, That's true. But yeah, it's these are these are higher order skills. And if you just look at that linear, but they hit their number, you're not looking it, it might be that they were utterly competent, but I don't think you're looking at enough of the facets of what this really requires to do it consistently. Um, because the other thing is salespeople have to deal with certain realities. I may not have my territory next year. I may not have it in fact what's been demonstrated is it'll probably change so why should i invest heavily why would i go long why would i sell something with a three-year window if i can grab money now because that's the right thing to do right but you know so we're always fighting those things and balancing the angel and the devil on your shoulder that's the game of carrying a quota and you you can do it as a higher order skill or not
0: yeah and especially when you said like what what does this mean he delivers Consistently uh, profitable deals. Um, those deals are sound. They are not those like where say, okay, there there have been some let's say miscommunications or customer has was was led in let's say on a on, in an area where he later finds out that oh I was oversold and so on. But those are sound deals. So in a certain way, it's it's a quite conservative, let's say yes. way of doing this job in a certain aspect.
1: It's, it's So I, I think one of the other sins is that we have to accept that salespeople are children of a lesser God when it comes to education, right? We do not get the same credentials as everybody else. And there's a lot more self-teaching that is required. Sales is largely a self-taught profession. And all my financial skills, I had to acquire myself. Um, and I was lucky to be in startups where I was working directly under a Harvard Business School trained CEO, who when he spoke, I felt like a child. I was like, I don't understand what you're saying, but I just saw you do a really big deal and you didn't use any of the language I use. You didn't take the approach we use. Why aren't we doing that? So I've been lucky to have that, but we don't treat our profession as a practice, right? Sales should be looked at as a practice, just like being a doctor, a lawyer, laws change, precedent changes, procedures change, things change. To your point about NCR, we've been executing as if this is a static profession, and that the economy doesn't change, and that technology doesn't change, and decision support assets don't change, and information flows don't change, and all of money, money, capital movement doesn't change. All those things have changed, and we are still following. The joke, uh, you know, it's not a funny joke, is that we're still using sales processes that are 30 and 40 years old. I mean- We're talking in the 70s and 80s, even 50 years old. What else do we know of that is persisting from the 70s and 80s that we still look at as being state of the art? I'm sure there's something. The Rolling Stones. Stones. I
0: I wanted to point at the, sorry, Stratocaster behind you. Yeah, yeah, yes. So there there are,
1: you're very right, right? But even that's (laughs) changed, right? The Rolling Stones started as a rhythm and blues band. Yeah. And then they evolved their art and it never left. it was always in there. but then they made it something absolutely unique and amazing, but it needed to evolve even though I can still love the old stuff, right And yeah, we maybe I don't want to flog the metaphor too much but but you know that is the reality. I mean the reason why you know anything new that's different should be received is because you know if you're working on ideas of the past, you're going to get stuck there, and and that's what's happened. There's a lot of fear. There's also a big perception that sales, you know, sales is sales. It's the oldest profession or second oldest profession. It's you know, you can't change it. It is what it is. Yeah, you're born with it or you're not. That is ridiculous, right? You're a born salesperson. That's usually an insult. It means you're a fast talker. It means you're a manipulator. It's never said as a compliment.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. But but still, can can a successful seller sell anything?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, so I would argue because you that know
0: that like uh,
1: he he can sell anything.
0: That that's tell, the sentence you quite ice, often.
1: He can sell ice to 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 the Inuit. Um, yeah. So, so okay, I would argue that an expert seller, someone who truly understands the craft and 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 the science, not just the craft, the science and and the art, but someone who truly commits to this who truly understands that true selling is is guiding influencing right asserting presenting ideas that someone couldn't get on a google searcher without you that align to how you achieve objectives missions goals how you how you deliver profitable results and free cash flows to your shareholders you know if you're selling to publicly traded companies i don't know if you understand that and you you every seller if I say, okay, I was selling this now I'm selling something completely different. my skills will transport, but the knowledge required of the space of how this creates value and all that, all that investment still has to be made. but if someone knows how to channel it properly, I'd argue someone who truly is is an expert at guidance, assertion, ideas and and, and, and showing someone, how to get from concept to closure, right, thoughtfully and objectively, I'd argue that person could sell anything because the process is almost always the same with minor modifications. But do you have competencies and expertise to where you can guide me? Or are you just reading off of a data sheet? Well, then I'm I'm not sure everybody can sell, a good seller can sell anything, right? It's really, it's the level of commitment. It's like saying, could a Could an electrical engineer do a mechanical engineer's job? The baseline STEM knowledge, mathematical knowledge, we all studied calculus and all this, that's required. Would you be as skilled? They're different disciplines, but could you, with the proper education or proper knowledge, execute that? I'd argue your brain is wired in such a way and your training is such with the discipline and process and all that, that the bridge might not collapse. Eric
0: we will go into a break now yeah because this uh we i know we just put something like a two into that ocean of your knowledge (laughs) and your expertise and uh we we could make more than just a two-part session out of this but probably like a 200 part session out of this but still we want to give us a break yeah um and we will meet again and um i'm looking already forward to the second part of that Lovely. Uh, I I, I, I am as well. So much for part one. Eric and I are having a break now. We will continue with our conversation how sales can raise success next week. There are again many things to learn here. I hope you have subscribed to this podcast so you do will get a notification and will not miss part two of this fantastic conversation with Eric Shaver. So thank you very much for listening. See you next week. Stay healthy. Bye-bye.